0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today, we're heading back to the deserts of Egypt where archeologists are once again searching for things that are probably best left undisturbed. This time, Steve Banning and his partner, Babe Jensen, are on the hunt for the tomb of an ancient Egyptian princess. With the aid of the Cairo Museum and some extra funding from an American magician, Steve and Babe managed to get farther in their search than any other expedition. But little do they know about the ancient magic that has been protecting this tomb for centuries, as well as those who would stop at nothing to ensure that it is never found. Join us as we head back to Cairo to discuss The Mummy's Hand. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! I tell you, I killed a wolf,
1: a plain ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world.
0: He went for a little walk. He have seen his face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. Today we're talking about the Mummy's Hand from 1940. I'm the Invisible Dan Colon, and joining me, as always, is my co-host and possibly the High Priest of Karnak himself, Monster Mike Manzi. How are
1: you? <laughs> I'm doing good, Dan. Good to be here. Uh, I can control my hands, unlike the mummy. Uh, plus, also, <laughs> It's nice to know that if this doesn't work out, I could always fall back on prestidigitation, which is a hundred-point vocabulary word that I learned from this movie.
0: Yeah, it might be the only time I've ever heard the word prestidigitation used in anything other than a and d campaign.
1: A hundred dollar word score for this movie right off the bat, but good, good to be
0: here. <laughs> So it's 1940, Universal has just had some major successes drawing inspiration from the James Will era with Son of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man Returns. And now they're looking to continue that success by dusting off another one of their iconic monsters. This time, it's The Mummy. But unlike their previous sequels, The Mummy's Hand is not really a sequel at all, but a sort of reboot of The Mummy franchise, introducing a new mummy, a new princess, and expanding on the cult-like High Priests of Karnak. Gone are Boris Karloff's eloquent and romantic Imhotep and his reincarnated love Aung replaced instead by the shambling mute Karis and the princess Anonka. And in keeping with Universal's new cheaper and faster mentality, the goal was to bring all the same thrills and chills but at a fraction of the cost. And to that end, this film features no major stars, it recycles footage, sets, and music from other films, and it clocks in at a brisk 67 minutes. However, despite many of these shortcuts being evident right there on the screen, there's no denying that The Mummy's Hand was a success because it resulted in three more sequels centered around Karis. So, Mike, I know we both really enjoyed the original Mummy. I even went so far as to suggest it might be the best Mummy movie ever made back in our fourth episode. Now, what are your initial thoughts on The Mummy's Hand, and how do you think it stacks up against this new wave of universal monster movies?
1: So, very interesting movie. Caught me completely off guard. We are certainly in a new sort of phase, um, you know, because this is just my modern brain and the terminology that I can relate this to, we are in a new phase of the Universal Monster movies. You know, sort of like you've been alluding to, these have become kind of genre pictures at this point now. We are not just stuck into the horror zone. You know, we're going all over the map. They're taking it everywhere that they can take it. And so, you know, I had never seen this movie before, and first and foremost, I did not expect it to be pretty much a a full-blown comedy. Let's not bury the lead here, but we're already at Abbott and Costello Meet the Monsters. Like, this is the dry run. That's how it feels. And I think that's that's a lot of fun about it. You know, that's not one of its shortcomings in my mind. You know, we talked a lot about how they mix the scary with the funny and they try to find that balance. I, I'm just amazed at how short this film is because it just seems like once it starts cooking, it's done. You know, the movie's over. They don't really get the opportunity to balance all the comedy that they use to sort of disarm you with the sort of dread and terror that they try to pull off in the back half of this movie. You know, I just wish there was more of that in the back half here. But I do like what is here. I don't think that it's a bad film by any means necessarily, but it's, it's just very different than uh, what's come before, you know? I mean, this feels more in line with The Invisible Man Returns than the original Mummy. Um, it just seems like they're on this different trajectory. They're trying to appeal to more audiences, trying to draw in a whole different crowd maybe. And and just finally, Finally, like it, it feels more kind of like a serial. like it feels like a matinee serial. It feels like something that they would show before a major feature. You know, it's only 60 minutes. And in this day and age, that's the length of a Disney Plus show or something. Right. Like, you know, like it's so common, like in it, this is 1940 and like another 10 15 years there'll be shows like Outer Limits and stuff which are hour long tales of weird and stuff so like the, this almost seems uh, like an episode of that in, uh, in a modern context you know it does have it's issues and problems and things but uh, overall I was I was pretty surprised how much I was enjoying the movie
0: yeah, I mean, it's it's very different from just about everything else we've seen up to this point. I mean, especially with the level of comedy that's present here. I don't really know for sure why this movie is so funny. And I know that we have some more of that coming down the pike for us. And, you know, I couldn't find anything to substantiate this. But my theory is that, you know, it's 1940. Most of the world is at war. And that would be in the news every single day. And I have to imagine that studios at this time even making a horror film would not want to really put too much horror up there on the screen because people were reading about real life horrors all the time so i mean that's my theory as to why these movies start to inject and so much more broad comedy right like as opposed to james Whale's comedy which is very specific and kind of highbrow comedy this is very like it's like for for kids to understand and appreciate right
1: yeah this is slapstick vaudeville right in your face kind of kind of stuff and you know i think that's a i think that's a very interesting point there that you made is that maybe unlike so many people in the depression uh, where like horror movies were very popular there's like real horrors going on in the world with the atrocities of wars and stuff. So like maybe this might have played a little bit better than if The Mummy was on a murder spree in downtown Cairo or, right. or got loose in London. You know what I'm saying? Like those mm-hmm. kinds of, of things might not have been uh, so much of a, of a draw at this point in anything. And, and I also feel like they've kind of coded it in a weird way, too, because, you know, Abbott and Costello, like that whole bit, like they're who's on first just kind of exploded like a year uh what was it like 37 or 38 mm-hmm. or something was when that took off and stuff so like maybe they're cashing in on a little bit of that when it comes to you know what's funny these days and I only say that because there seems to be another modern reference one of the characters is named babe clearly sort of the more rounder of the two guys and I thought I was thinking of babe Ruth you know sure, and he, sure. he mentions Brooklyn and he talks about Coney Island and everything and so yeah I think all of those things kind of feels makes it feel like a comfort film on a, on a certain level
0: you know, this movie is its not as beautiful or as flat out, it's not as well made as some of the earlier Universal Monster movies, but I do find myself enjoying it quite a bit, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it does kind of succeed at what it sets out to do. I don't think it has high aspirations, it's not trying to be really um, highbrow art, right? This is, like like you said, it's basically a serial, a mummy serial, and, like, I'm totally down with that. And, you know, it, it is a pretty stark contrast between the movies we've talked about and then this. I think the pendulum is coming far the opposite way, and we're seeing these movies become kind of what the Universal Monsters will be overall. The bulk of these movies are not high art, you know? The bulk of them are sort of serial children's monster movies. And so, yeah, I think this one airs way more into the comedy than a lot of the other ones do, but, like, eventually it's going to even out, and we're going to get, a you know, a better balance of, of comedy and, and horror as we get further into the 40s and then into the 50s. What's
1: interesting about this film that plays well is... The horror, they play that extremely straight. Like, they're not fooling around when it comes to that, you know? Like, they're leaving it all to... Pretty much, like, the first half of the movie is the comedy, and the second half is when they sort of get into the scarier sort of stuff, uh, pretty much. But, like, the difference is there's just less of that, of the horror stuff in this, so that's where the unbalance comes from. But interestingly, I never feel like either one gets in each other's way, you know? Like, the slapstick stuff is jokey, but it's not all practical Falls it's like con artists and bar and bar fights and, and like misunderstandings and jokes and, and things like routines and, and that kind of stuff too. So so it's never really just someone like slipping on a banana peel per se, and neither is the horror ever sort of some guy you know gets knocked on the head and his eyes roll in the back of his head and you know, he sort of wiggles down like a snake and hits the floor with a thud. Like it's it's actually played real. So I, I appreciate that about it and I think that's you know a smart move on their behalf.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with all of that. I think that universal monsters are always best when uh, when the comedy and the horror are kept separate. There are some moments that I can think of where that is not the case, and and those are the moments that I I tend to not like quite as much. But here, as much comedy as there is, you know, they do keep those two things separate. And may, perhaps we don't get enough of the horror. I think like once Chorus is unleashed, I think there's maybe 20 minutes left in the movie. You know, so it's it's really maybe the back third, not even the back half of this where where it really becomes a horror film you can argue that maybe it's not enough i'm kind of okay with it because the movie has been so comedic up to that point i like this movie quite a bit it's not one of my favorites as far as we have gotten so far it would probably rank at the bottom you know but something has to be in the bottom of our first 11 films i wouldn't say that that's a great indicator of how i feel about it because i do actually get a lot of enjoyment out of this
1: yeah i agree with that sentiment as well My only issue is sort of, if they're going to spend more time with something, like, they have the opportunity to really draw it out with that part where they get into the tombs and they could get lost in the tunnels the only thing that kind of sticks with me is that there are these opportunities that they seem to have either missed or weren't on their mind or anything however on the other hand like the action and the pretty stark shift in tone kind of like makes up for what's missing as well you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what happens is so sort of like fast-paced action-packed like one two three and like stuff is happening and you know we do get that cool sort of Egyptian imagery and Stuff, which, you know, may not work well enough on its own this time around, but, but they bring a lot of that back. It still works. It's just like if they could have done something, it would have been cool if they kind of stretched out that ending just a bit more.
0: Well, I have something to add to that later on. I'll get get to that once we get to that scene. But let's get into the production. As I mentioned at the top, the success of Son of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man, it really encouraged Universal to stick with their tried and true stable of characters, right? So to give you an idea of how quickly they were just cranking these things out, The Invisible Man Returns was released in January of 1940. And by May, The Mummy's Hand had begun shooting and it had a modest budget of $80,000. Wow. Yeah, like, like I said, Universal was—they were looking for quantity over quality at this point. You know, save as much money as you can, but still crank this stuff out. You know, like if you throw a mummy in there, people are gonna come see it. So don't don't go crazy, right? The Landlies are very clearly gone at this point, point. and so the movie was produced by a man named Ben. Pivar. He was a former film editor who had produced many films up to this point, and he would eventually go on to produce The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, and She-Wolf of London for Universal, among others.
1: Cool. He kind of became the mummy man for a while.
0: For a little while, yeah, but don't mistake his level of experience for talent. Reginald LeBorg, who directed The Mummy's Ghost, once referred to him as the epitome of the artless, non-creative studio executive. The term hack comes to mind sometimes. Yeah, apparently uh, Pivar was also known for holding himself in his office for long periods of time, making crude remarks. All right. And he was seemingly illiterate. So I don't know that the people who worked for him held him in very high regard.
1: (laughs) It's a good thing he wasn't working in silent film when they had all the title cards. (laughs) There's a telegram in this movie and they show it up on the screen and it reminded me of those... Oh, yeah. (laughs) The silent era.
0: (laughs) So in the director's chair, we've got Christy Cabanet, who was one of the most prolific directors during the silent era. Uh, I think he got started around 1910. And so he'd been working for a long time before he got this gig. He started as an assistant to W.D. Griffith before that. So, oh. And over the course of his career, he developed a reputation for efficiency and resourcefulness and could crank out films very quickly, even under very stressful conditions. So I really understand why Universal would want a guy like him at this point
1: right? Yeah, yeah. They wish they could have found him a couple years ago, right? (laughs) Right.
0: The transition to sound films was not very kind to him, though. He began working for Universal towards the end of his career, and then eventually went to making low-budget westerns for monogram pictures, and then eventually sort of faded into obscurity. So we're not seeing him at his peak here, but, you know, I think he does a pretty okay job with the material.
1: Yeah, yeah. If not for nothing, I'd say, like, the acting is stellar in this movie yes. right like every every character seems to know thyself is how yes. i was watching it you know like everybody is genuine there's no fakers here like it's pretty great in that way
0: yeah. Now, the screenplay was written by Griffin Jay and Maxwell Shane based on a story by Griffin Jay. Jay would go on to write The Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Ghost, as well as other genre fare, including *The Return of the Vampire, starring Bela Lugosi, and a quasi-sequel to The Devil Bat called The Devil Bat's Daughter. He was sort of the guy to, to do all of these sort of like B-horror films in in the 40s. So we've got Dick Foran starring as Steve Banning, our, our main archaeologist here. Foran made a name for himself as a singing cowboy in the 1930s.
1: Yeah, this guy has a velvet speaking voice. Like, I really yes. enjoyed his, like, very radio on this guy. Sounds like an announcer.
0: Yeah, he starred in films such as Song of the Saddle and California Mail before appearing in serials, comedies, and horror films.
1: Oh, I wonder he never did like Dracula sings you know, <laughs> the Mummy's tune instead.
0: <laughs> I would love to see to have seen Dick Ferrand do like a musical horror film, but no i don't I don't believe he ever did. I think uh, westerns were sort of his bread and butter.
1: yeah, lots of nothing to do out on the plane but sing. <laughs>
0: Got Wallace Ford playing Babe Jensen. Ford was a longtime character actor who landed the lead role in Todd Browning's Freaks early in his career. You may remember him from Freaks.
1: Okay, I did not recognize him.
0: Yeah, he actually received top billing in Freaks, so if you go back and revisit that film, he is, like, the main character, in addition to all of the actual, uh, you know, carnival performers.
1: Yeah, I thought he was good, too. You know, like, again, never drops the act, like, constantly on. But not, like, in an annoying way. Like, knows when enough is enough, is the way that I kind of read this guy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's either credited to him or the editor. I don't imagine there was much left on the cutting room floor, considering how efficient everything was. But yeah, I I think I find that his, um, his contribution to the film is just sort of he's punctuating these moments with his comedy as opposed to overtaking full scenes with his comedy, which is kind of the best way to do it here.
1: Yeah, and Dick Ferran's a good straight man, you know, in all of mm-hmm. this. He, he's not really trying to get any laughs, but kind of gains one or two uh, by shrapnel, right? Like,
0: right. I guess. <laughs> He's a leading man, but he's not completely without humor, you know? He he does have sort of a a, a good-natured quality to him as opposed to being kind of a rough-and-tumble, handsome bland leading man you know he's got some character to him so yeah i think they work together just kind of i mean to to reference having costello you know they kind of have a similar chemistry for sure
1: it's funny too because babe seems to be a con man whereas steve is like an actual you know archaeologist and they're just kind of buddies but it also just seems like steve isn't kind of against babe doing sort of like scheming for them to get their money or whatever or resources and stuff. So like, you're right. Like he's not just some stick in the mud either, you know, like he's willing to get his hands dirty and sort of play both sides if he has to.
0: Right. But at the same time, I don't understand what babes, role is like he doesn't strike me as an archaeologist
1: oh no yeah he's just like along for the ride it's his sidekick like i mean that's where that's where you have to kind of suspend his belief a bit i guess and say like oh they're going they're they're a comedy duo because i mean it might have been more believable if a vaudeville duo like is down on out of their luck and got kicked out of a theater and then come across this vase and (laughs) try to like go along with this get rich quick scheme but no like Steve's an actual doctor and an archaeologist and Babe is just like his buddy tagging along.
0: Yeah I watched this movie several times over the past week and I was trying to figure out exactly what Babe's credentials were and it really like I think he's just there as Steve's friend.
1: (laughs) Later, the professor is going to be like, well, I've heard of Mr. Banning. I've never heard of you, though. (laughs) It's it's so just like backhanded insulting to the dude, but he just like brushes it off anyway. But yeah, 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 I don't know what he's doing here.
0: (laughs) So uh, Wallace Ford, just to get back to his career real quick, he co-starred with Walter Houston and Gene Harlow in the 1932 gangster film The Beast of the City. And then he would also go on to appear in Harvey in 1950 with Jamie Stewart. And then uh, he ended his career with, with numerous appearances in a wide variety of TV shows. So that's kind of like where his career went. Oh,
1: did he uh, did he pop up on Batman 66? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't notice that in his credits, but that would be amazing if he did. I
1: know. It just as like a henchman to Mr. Freeze.
0: We will see both actors again. They both reprise their roles in the next Mummy film, The Mummy's Tomb. So we have, we have not seen the last of them. No way. That's
1: crazy like you just blew my mind I think you just made me like this movie a little bit more knowing that they're gonna keep it going yeah Um, because because you mentioned this is kind of like a soft reboot in a weird way it's kind of taking the elements of the first movie but giving them to new characters and adding an extra thing or two with the tea leaves and stuff but yeah that's pretty cool
0: so now we got George Zucco who plays Andoheb who is the new High Priest of Karnak. He is maybe the actor with the most horror credibility in the entire cast. However, at this point, The Mummy's Hand was at the very beginning of that part of his career. Horror fans of this time period definitely know his name. He made his mark on horror with this film. So this guy
1: is terrific. Like I almost feel like this is why I want more of the horror stuff in here, because I want more of this guy. Like I want to see him when we get to it. I want to see him sort of plot to uh, get Marta to be his high priestess a little bit longer. And Dead Ringer, in my eyes, for Frank Langella. I'm watching this, (laughs) and I'm like, the intensity, the stare, the profile. I was like, holy cow, like, Frank Langella is
0: in this movie. I, you know, it hadn't occurred to me, but now that you mention it, I can absolutely see George Zucco as sort of a, um, a ringer for Frank Langella. That's that's spot on. I wonder if he played any vampires over, over the course of his career. I don't know offhand, but now I want to look it up. So up to that point, he was a pretty well-known actor, you know, in his own right. He had made a name for himself with a variety of, of dramatic roles and other things. He appeared in James Whale's Journey's End alongside Colin Clive. Nice. His first American production, I believe, was after The Thin Man, and he is probably most famous for playing Moriarty in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring son of Frankenstein himself, Basil Rathbone.
1: No kidding. I got to watch those because I bet they got some acting in that movie. Like, (laughs) to see this guy with that guy. Yes. That would be great.
0: I think Zucko is is the actor in this cast with maybe the best acting chops, at least for the for the dramatic stuff. If it weren't for his character in this film, it would be entirely comedy. But anytime Andoheb shows up in a scene, suddenly things aren't so funny anymore. You know, when we as the audience, we're kind of little, kind of tense, right? He's got that ability to bring that out, just his presence.
1: Very unnerving, and you know, because he's from the other part of the movie, it's like the comedy clashing.
0: After this, he would go on to appear in. Other films, including The Mad Monster and Dead Men Walk. And then he does return to the Mummy franchise in The Mummy's Tomb and in The Mummy's Ghost. And we will also see him again in House of Frankenstein. So I look forward to that.
1: Definitely. In the new phase, I got a a new guy to keep my eye on here.
0: Yes. Now, rumor has it that less than a week before they started production, Universal sought out Peter Lorre. Once again, remember, they were trying to get him (laughs) for... John Frankenstein, and then he decided not to do it, so they, they tried to court him again here, presumably for this role. I think this is the role he's probably best suited for in the film. That would have been great, I think, also, but I'm happy to see George Zucco do his thing here.
1: Yeah, I think he was like off making gangster pics at this point. Peter Laurie mm-hmm. would like do Maltese Falcon and then two years later Casablanca. Um, I know he was doing horror movies around this time but I I just keep thinking about the movie M and it's like you already sort of solidified yourself as one of the film's greatest monsters in that movie. Just let him do other stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah I mean he turned down Son of Frankenstein because he didn't want to play quote another meanie you know like so this was only a a year later I can't or two years later maybe. I can't imagine him changing his mind so quickly you know things were going pretty pretty well for him at this point so we've got Cecil Kellaway and Peggy Moran who play Silvani and his daughter Marta respectively Kellaway was a British South African character actor who appeared in over 140 films and TV shows over the course of his career including The Postman Always Rings Twice Harvey and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner oh
1: and I Married a Witch love that one
0: that's right. But we will remember him as Samson, the cigar-smoking chief inspector in The Invisible Man returns.
1: Oh yeah. Holy crap. I totally didn't recognize him. What a terrific actor. Yes. He comes into this movie twirling that cane with nothing but a care in the world. Like it is so great. I I never would have put that together because I just didn't, you know, I leave the research to you and Right. These nice surprises appearing on air are fun. So like that's terrific. He's awesome.
0: As I was re-watching this, I'm like, hang on a second. You know, I'm doing my research. I'm, I'm putting my notes together. And I'm like, I know that actor. He, like, strikes me as somebody familiar. I can't figure out who it is. And then I saw that he was in The Invisible Man Returns. And I'm like, oh, right. He was that guy. So, yeah, it's not his first Universal monster film, though I think it might be his last don't quote me on that. We have seen him already. And, and I love that, like, you're, you're right. His range is impressive. The, I didn't immediately recognize him from the Invisible Man Returns. And he just seemed like this whole new character. But now I think about it. Oh, hell yeah, he played both characters. Fantastic actor. Peggy Moran made 35 films between 1938 and 1943, the most famous of which was The Mummy's Hand. She was once quoted as saying that The Mummy's Hand was, quote, probably the worst picture I ever made a lousy picture.
1: Oh no, she's great in this. Like and her character is such a breath of fresh air. So assertive and like smart and in on the adventure and just not what we've seen really up until this point. The last sort of like I guess female lead kind of this Active kind of felt like way back in Frankenstein, (laughs) yeah, or or the Invisible Man when like their wife or fiance is like, "There's no time for any romance." Like my husband's missing, or there's something you know, like we have to get to the bottom of this. Like she is very much like, "Don't swindle my father," you know, and just comes out swinging.
0: I agree with that until they go on the expedition, and at that point, it's it's almost as if the writers just didn't know what else to do with her, and she sort of falls into that love interest role. So I find her to be less interesting in the back half.
1: Yeah I give you that because again like I've expressed I just feel like they had no idea really what to do at all in the back back end for the most part let alone like what ends up happening with her character feels like way out of left field. Yes you're right it does kind of devolve at that point to a degree but at least she's out there on the expedition is is what I was thinking you know.
0: Yeah (laughs) I mean to Peggy Moran's credit I think she does as great a job as she can with the material she was given. So definitely props to her her acting career pretty much came to an end when she married director henry Coster, who had made many films but is probably best known for harvey after their marriage Coster had a bust made of her and then included it in every film he made after that so okay (laughs) kind of kind kind of a strange thing but you know harvey isn't is one of those films that he made after marrying her so i'm sure that bust of her is in there somewhere
1: harvey coming up a lot tonight good movie very good
0: yeah so we've got the director of harvey and two actors who appeared in that yeah so i didn't expect that going into this episode but yeah we got a real real harvey connection And lastly, Tom Tyler, who plays our mummy, Karras. He was a big, strong, handsome type at the time, and he was supposedly cast because of a, a superficial resemblance to Karloff. Previously, he was the star of silent and early sound serials and westerns before taking supporting roles in Stagecoach and Gone with the Wind. But his most famous role came after The Mummy's Hand, when he starred as Captain Marvel in 1941's Adventures of Captain Marvel.
1: Oh, wow. Cool. So he was actually Shazam in the serials.
0: Correct. He was the sort of big strapping leading man that I was referring to that like Dick Faran is not. Tom Tyler was the other version, the other like hyper masculine hero of the story, you know, and and so that's that was his career.
1: Two things sort of went through my head. So so he's also playing the mummy and Karis before he's the mummy. Right. So he's in like the new footage. So... I just thought he was a stunt man, you know? I was like... <laughs> Grab the most handsome stuntman, but now I'm thinking like he's kind of got like a George Reeves thing going on, especially right. once you mention Captain Marvel and and everything. It's like yeah, I, when I rewatched this a second time uh, and I was watching those like flashback scenes and stuff, I was like yeah, this guy is pretty handsome and like looks pretty muscular and, and big and stuff. It's like yeah, okay, I buy it. I buy him to be under the wraps and strong enough to like lift a guy over his head or something.
0: Everything that I've encountered seems to indicate that he was, you know, cast for his size, the way he sort of looks like Karloff, you know, I guess because they knew they were going to repurpose footage. So they needed somebody who was close enough, but also a large enough presence that he could be intimidating and scary.
1: They pulled a, an Ed Wood before Ed Wood because they literally just need him to look like Karloff from, like, the nose up, right? Yes, because yes. because they have the wrap around his mouth and his chin and, and everything else, so.
0: And that's pretty much it for the principal cast. I hate to disappoint you, Mike, but I wasn't really able to dig up any real juicy behind-the-scenes gossip here. Oh, no hot goss. Too bad. No, no. I mean, Universal, they weren't screwing around with this production. Production began at the end of May and ran into mid-June with the cast and crew logging plenty of overtime hours to finish the film in a a two-week schedule. According to Peggy Moran, she had to be on set at 6 a.m. for hair and makeup, and filming began at 8 a.m. She'd occasionally work as late as 4 a.m. the next day. She even commented that, quote, They would do that with people like me because we were under contract. The law requires that outside talent only work for X number of hours, but me, they could work all the time. Huh. So it was a it was a grueling 2 plus weeks of production to get this thing done on time. Our boy Jack Pierce was back for makeup, of course. However, this time that same painstaking process of gluing strips of cotton to create like the deep wrinkles in Tom Tyler's face was only used for close-up and medium shots. He figured out a way to make a rubber mask that Tom Tyler would wear for the wide shots to, you know, save time and money.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great technique. Especially black and white, you could really cheat with the shadows.
0: Yeah, and I, and I want to say that that sort of became the norm going forward with subsequent Mummy films. You know, of course, we'll cover that when we get there. So I think once he realized that he could he could fake it and get away with, with a rubber mask instead, you know, that just sort of became the go-to thing. Why, why work harder than you have to, right?
1: Yeah. So, do you have any information on what's going on with the Mummy's eyes? Because Forget about his hands in this movie I think they should have named it The Mummy's Eyes uh, On account (laughs) account of his hypnotic stare That they tried to pull off somehow
0: Yeah, I don't have anything specific about that Although, you know, it's pretty obvious That they blacked out The Mummy's Eyes In those close-up shots And I think that was just to give him A more menacing appearance
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, I was thinking it's supposed to sort of Be like, oh, he doesn't have eyeballs So you're just seeing the socket Or or part of his, his skull or something
0: Yeah, I didn't see anything that explicitly explained it to that degree, but, you know, I think it is scarier than seeing just normal eyes staring at you through some bandages, right? So
1: It was jarring, and and I just assumed, like, it's some kind of power, too, right? Like, this mummy stares at you, and you fall under his powers and stuff, and he
0: petrifies you. Possibly. Uh, I don't know that this is the movie that's really going too deep.
1: (laughs) No, you never know. But I was thinking some kind of Medusa effect, you know, where like you, you can't move, like not necessarily transform to stone or anything, but like, you know, you're stopped in your tracks because of whatever's happening on his eyes.
0: Right. So in addition to blatantly repurposing stock footage from the original Mummy, Universal also saved some money by reusing the set from James Whale's Green Hill for the tomb sequences Oh, okay. And they lifted almost the entire musical score from Son of Frankenstein.
1: (laughs) That sounded very familiar. I was like, I know this music. The sets, that makes a lot of sense because I was like, where did these come from? They're not using them a lot, right? And and like the one at the end is almost treated as sort of a twist reveal of like look at this extra catacomb and then look at the size of this thing but i was like wow these locations in here are so awesome i just i wish we were chilling here a lot longer
0: i think green hell is set in south america so the sets would have been like aztec temples and things like that so they had to be redressed to appear egyptian here That
1: answers a huge question, uh, something I was going to wait to bring up. But since we're here now, I I thought at the start of this, when the title card comes up, I was like, are we in South America? Is this going to be a (laughs) South American mummy? Are we going Aztec? Is this going to like go into sort of maybe the Mayan calendar kind of stuff about the end of the world like I was ready for that too like I was on the edge of my seat I'm seeing I'm seeing a, a mountain and grass and like all these stone like walkways I'm like we're not in Egypt right now like we're not in the desert at this point but we actually are according to the story I just you know it's made abundantly clear in, in the following scene uh, exactly what is going on with all of this iconography and stuff like that but like I was very pumped at first <laughs> it's like we're going somewhere else
0: well i got news for you mike when we get there there are mummy movies that do take place outside of egypt oh i will end it there i will not spoil it for you but just know that we have a few more mummy movies to go and we do get to get outside of egypt so
1: my modern mummy take is uh, moon mummies basically it's like mummy on the moon (laughs) (laughs) that's where we need to be
0: As intended, the production of The Mummy's Hands stayed relatively on track, going only $4,000 over budget and just a little bit over schedule. By the end of June, editing was complete and the film was ready for a September release. By all accounts, everything that I referenced, you know, this thing was just designed to be a quick, cheap moneymaker for Universal. I don't think there was a whole lot of creativity at hand here. Yeah, They just wanted to crank out a Mummy movie just to cash in on something that they, like, because, you know, people loved The Mummy, you know, with Carlos. Yeah,
1: so- yeah there's nothing against that, like, they're cashing in on their property, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and, and The Mummy just gets caught in the crossfires of being used for its name right it sort of seems to be the first well maybe the invisible man one too but that turned out to be a better movie i think than they might have expected this is very sort of right down the middle it's not great it's not terrible it's just it's fine you know there are parts i i really enjoy because i'm into the mummy okay Mm -hmm. and i Mm -hmm. and i feel like that's what they're going for it's like you know the mummy like come check out the mummy modern audiences might not have cared so much that it wasn't as scary because you yeah. They're just there for the name.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've read some disparaging reviews for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I look at this and I think of a great deal of why I like it is just because I enjoy mummy stuff. You know, I like being in this sort of archaeological environment. And I think that Egypt as a location is pretty fascinating. So there's a lot of a lot of shorthand at play here to get me where do I need to where I need to be. But like, It's okay, you know, like I just, I'm enjoying the environment and ready to just enjoy a mummy movie.
1: Yeah, and I feel like we get more mummy than we did in the first actual mummy. I mean, that had Karloff, granted that had Karloff, but like we actually get more mummy mummy in this movie too. So like as this weird comedic variant of the first movie remake kind of style, like it's fun and it works for what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know people criticize the original mummy because Karloff is only in mummy makeup for, you know, less than five minutes. And, he, and now, like, every mummy from, from this point on, it's a fully wrapped mummy for the entire movie. Or at least, you know, you know even if he's not on screen, he's still just, um, you know, in the wrappings the whole time. But the trade-off is that, you know, he's not talking. He's, he's just sort of a silent, brutish force. Sort of like a Frankenstein monster in a way. They sort of shift the antagonist role To other human beings, which is totally fine. But um, seeing these movies play out the way you expect them to is what gives me an appreciation for that original mummy movie. Because, like, we, we have so many of these movies where the mummy is just, you know, a mummy. So I think I like that original movie just because of how different it is compared to everything else.
1: I'm pretty much the same way, like, again, I I like the idea of we're going to do something different with the mummy, and I wasn't expecting the first mummy to like, really do that, right? It's like, oh, do you want to see a lot of like, the guy come out of the sarcophagus and the wrappings and all that kind of, that's what you're expecting, but yes, you're right, like, this is the second time in the row, one way or the other, where they've sort of subverted your expectations. The first one, it's like, hey, you're going to see Karloff do some great acting and we're going to throw in like a shot of the mummy. And in this one, it's like, you're going to get all your mummy, but you're, it's also going to be like a comedy. So
0: like, right, right.
1: they're doing like very interesting things with this series so far.
0: Yes. So with that, I think we just dive right in. As you mentioned, the opening credits open up on this like sort of temple set with a lot of greenery. Doesn't exactly look like Egypt, but it is Egypt.
1: (laughs) It looks exactly like you said, like an Aztec thing. Like there's a big circular sun face. Right. It's like the stuff I just associate. I'm no archaeologist. I'm no expert in pyramids. OK, but like I know there's a lot in South America and it just felt more like one of those that I was looking at.
0: Yeah. For those of us who grew up as kids in the 90s, there's a straight up Olmec at the top of this thing. You know, that rock face from Legends of the Hidden Temple. Anybody? Uh-
1: <laughs> You're exactly right. That's exactly what I was trying to think of.
0: Yeah. So instead of just beginning straight with our heroes, this film begins with the whole sort of the the Temple of Karnak uh, in the Hill of the Seven Jackals. You know, those of us who are paying attention in The Mummy kind of remember there's this cult that's responsible for the power, ancient powers of The Mummy, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we, we start with them. And Andoheb is the first character we really get to meet. He is heading back to Egypt, back to his homeland, to inherit the title of High Priest of Karnak. Yeah. So the current High Priest of Karnak, played by Eduardo Cianelli, he's dying and needs to leave this position to somebody else, a younger man. And so he he kind of gives us the whole, what I like to call the information dump. He tells the whole story up front. You know, previously we had to wait till like the midpoint of the movie but he's just laying it all out right there. The story of this mummy is very similar to what we're used to. I mean, that's because they had to recycle so much footage. They had to kind of pick a story that would work with the footage they had. So we have an ancient Egyptian princess Ananka who dies and she is buried and then we're introduced to Karis. They don't go so far as to say that he is in love with her or they had any kind of a relationship here. They're very careful not to give us that information but we do know that he is devoted to her in some respect and so he sneaks into the... The same room where that statue of Isis.
1: The Temple of Isis, yeah.
0: (laughs) And, And instead of taking the Scroll of Thoth, he steals these tana leaves. So now we've got like this new magical element, right? These tana leaves. Yeah, yeah. Because he was planning to resurrect her with these magical Tana leaves, he is buried alive, just like in the original Mummy. He is carried out to a gravesite. The slaves are killed, so they can't tell anybody about it. And then his tomb is moved to another location. And for the past 3,000 years, he's been kept alive with this Tana leaf brew, right? Like almost like a tea. Tana tea. Yep. It's, it's almost like Gremlins, right, where it's, you know, we have to give him this, this solution in the cycle of the full moon, you know, three leaves, brew some of this Tana juice, give it to him, and it'll maintain his heartbeat just to keep him alive. And then should anybody, you know, pose a threat to Ananka's tomb, brew nine Tana leaves, but no more than nine because he'll become an unstoppable destructive force. So, like, we get the rules right up front in this whole sequence.
1: I really enjoyed this sequence, uh, especially the second time after I knew, you know, because like you said, it is an info dump. There's a lot of exposition, not even exposition, because we're not sort of setting up what's coming along. We're getting the campfire story. We're getting that sequence, right? We're, we're sort of getting the previously on or like... right we got to bring it up to speed on what the last movie was, so let's sort of sum up the bullet points here. And I thought it was a really smart way to do it by kind of having the high priest... Pass the torch to the new high priest, right? He he. It, and from what I understand, it, this guy might actually be his biological son, which makes it even cooler. Is that like I'm gonna go sort of sit in this temple and replace my father for the rest of my life? And when like, <laughs> do that, and take up the family business. Like I liked I like that, and and it's cool because you know he's explaining this information to this character, and and we're catching it at the same time. Okay, so it's really the movie's talking to us not talking to the professor here Uh, so very very smart filmmaking they use the stock footage you know pretty well very you know yeah like i think the rewrite it really messed with my mind because my memory isn't as swift as it used to be and we're watching all these movies and it, and the, the legends getting tangled but i was like yeah you know like if i saw the original i probably would think this is like the same story <laughs> you know like the same right, people right. but then like they introduced the tana t and all that kind of stuff and i'm like oh all right all right this is their main divergent this is the main thing that they got going on the mummy is basically like a golem like he, you know you, yes. you put things you put things in his mouth or whatever and he protects like the area uh that he's assigned to sort of the the heritage of the land and everything um so i like that too like that was really cool but man the full moon like i lost my mind when the full moon is mentioned a wolf howls uh-huh. and then this high priest says children children of, of the, the night, night. Dude, I was like, all right, I don't care what happens. Like, I'm down with this film from now on. Like, strictly from like this side, strictly from you know whatever else is going on. And I didn't imagine it was gonna be all that. like comedy stuff, but I was fine with it because I felt like they did this really well and this was so strong and stuff, you know you got like this million year old man like sitting there, dying, turning into a skeleton or whatever, it's really crazy.
0: Yeah, I I love putting this right up at the top, you know, you mentioned it's sort of like a previously on kind of segment, I think that in some ways it does function that way because it's so similar to the backstory of the original Mummy, it's, you know, for for the people who, who have been paying attention, who went and saw the Mummy, broad strokes, a lot of it is the same but then you know you you, so you're kind of getting a refresher right but then they they sprinkle in these new details with the tana leaves and also i love that you know, it opens with the villains of the story or, or arguably the villains of the story. I mean, they're essentially trying to protect millions of years of ancient Egyptian culture from the white man. So uh,
1: I know. <laughs> yeah. So you mean the heroes of the story,
0: but you know what I mean? Like for, for all intents and purposes, they're the villains of this story. And I love that this sort of brings the mummy franchise back to a place where people are the real monsters and not the monster itself, which is very much a Frankenstein kind of concept.
1: Yeah, I like that too. It wasn't lost on me either that these guys are not the real bad guys. Like, it's always just funny how people are framed throughout history. <laughs> and that, yeah. like, this movie in particular, you know, it's almost American propaganda by the end, right? Where like, these two guys from Brooklyn defeat a supernatural force, pillage the tomb and get a job at a museum in America. At the you know,
0: like, it's just yeah. insane they are arguably the villains at least until the end uh andoheb they sort of are more explicit with his villainy in the final moments of the film but yeah yes yes
1: he's he's got a turn no one sees coming
0: yeah so after the information dump we finally get to meet our protagonists here we get to meet Steve and Babe who are hanging out in a Cairo bazaar what we get from this scene is that their expedition that they came to Cairo for, has not really been going so well. They have run out of money. And the museum that they were funded by back in New York City has decided they're not going to send them any more money. Your trip's over. Uh, I think they call it your vacation. You know, like, we're not going to continue funding your vacation. Come back home and we'll have a job here for you cleaning bones and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the implication is, like, they're stranded. Like, they don't even have money to, like, charter a vessel or anything is sort of what I got from it Uh, I might have missed something but that sort of added an extra weight to it it's like kind of stop messing around for a minute and like, let's figure out how we are going to get home here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, they have some money and just, they have just about enough money to get home. But of course, Steve finds this broken clay pot from one of the bizarre vendors and to normal eyes, it may seem as a worthless piece of junk. You know, babe certainly is unimpressed by it, but Steve recognizes its value and uses i think like 75 of the 80 some dollars that they have to purchase it so they are friendly with the local cairo museum right so they they take this artifact to the cairo museum where we get to meet Dr. Petrie, who is sort of like their contact there. And he is he's like with them, right? Like this is a real legitimate piece of history.
1: Yeah, yeah. This could possibly, you know, like save their face. Like if this turns out to be true and it seems authentic, then they're back in it. Not only that, like they, they could be like in the money. Like this could be like a career making sort of thing. Again, like this guy's looking at like the ancient vase and everything and Babe is buying this little like dancing... <laughs> puppet he calls Poopsie and thinks we'll bring him good luck and ends up being sort of like a bad omen for the entire movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think at one point he even says to the little doll, like, "All right, you gotta like start working now, you know, like, but yeah, so they've got $84, They, uh, they spend most of it on this vase. Dr. Petrie at the museum is all about it, you know, like, this seems totally legitimate to me. Let's consult one of my colleagues here, you know, like to get extra confirmation. And so they take it into the next room and wouldn't you know it Andoheb works for the cairo museum
1: very cool reveal where it's like one of those classic villain reveals where he likes almost swivels around in his chair and stands up and the music stings and it's like oh i i certainly wasn't expecting him there so well done
0: well uh he is none too impressed by this piece of pottery
1: oh such a great i love this bit i love this part
0: <laughs> yeah we know what his goal is right and we know that the heroes are going to conflict with that goal. And he doesn't waste any time. He plays this thing off as if it's some cheap replica, some piece of junk. Yeah,
1: he's like, I get these, people bring these to me all the time. It's a scam. I really wish, like, the market would crack down on this kind of thing. Like, he's really playing the part. Like, he's positioned perfectly in this place to control who can find the tomb, you know, and protect it and everything. Like, I really like that idea around it and that he's, like, playing it off. And then, man, the Ultimate is uh, how he's like Mr. Butterfingers, and he drops the thing. Yes. So he's, you know, he's like, now they really can't do anything about it
0: and I love him sort of very coolly pulling rank like I've been doing this for decades and if you don't mind me saying so have achieved some status of authority on the subject you know like he's such a great villain because he never really loses his composure in any of these scenes but yeah I love him dropping the vase almost like quote unquote by accident but he's you know very clearly trying to destroy
1: it very imposing presence to like I was sort of saying earlier you know this is where the the two tones of the movie clash and you see how how, like, kind of uneasy it makes the scene feel. Like, that's what I like about it. And, and also the whole idea, these guys clearly have the feeling this dude is throwing them off the trail as well. So, like, there's, like, one or two extra sort of, I feel, things under the surface going on. There's a game of cat and mouse of some kind.
0: Yes, I think the majority of that is under the surface. It's not quite like Dracula meeting Van Helsing. He's the guy standing in their way. They're convinced this artifact is legitimate, and he's disagreeing with them very strongly. But yeah, I mean, for us, the audience members, like, this is our moment to see the two main forces of this movie come together for the first time. I mean, it happens in the first 15 minutes. It's crazy.
1: I would be fine if this movie was, you know, an hour and 20 minutes, but yeah. like, in my mind and like it's almost over
0: yeah I mean this thing it moves at such a clip that this scene has already taken place in the first like 15 minutes or so we still have like another fifty minutes but yeah this stuff moves so quickly we could have easily gone another 20 minutes runtime wise I think you, you, you nailed it before by saying like the performances in here are really strong I mean the characters are not very complex I think that's all on the writing, you know? They they intentionally created these broad characters. But I think the performances here are totally believable. And, you know, it's, it's those actors that help keep me invested in what's happening on the screen.
1: Yes, yes. And I even would have gone for one of the scenes that the Babe character would probably find boring and leave the room during. But I needed a little more of Dr. Petrie, you know? Like, he is going to be... Spoilies, but, like, he's going to be the only guy who gets murdered by the mummy in this movie. So, like... It would be cool to know him a little more. Does he have a wife? Does he have any kids like that? <laughs> just that idea, right? Of like, of Steve going like, how's the wife and kids? But we never even know that. So like, I just feel like we could use this time to put one of those, for lack of a better term, sort of like boardroom scenes, right? Yeah. Or something yeah. like that, where there's just in a room talking at a table about each other or something.
0: He's actually one of two of the quote good guys who becomes collateral damage in this movie. There is one other character that dies, but like, of the main, you know, principal cast, yeah, everybody else survives this movie. Like, the, you know, it almost, like, they were aiming for that happy ending, probably for reasons like I mentioned before, about how, you know, so much bad was happening in the world, they wanted to give people some something hopeful at the end.
1: Yeah, I mean, this movie will literally end on a joke, like, it's a punchline, but before that, like, I do feel like they Get to the edge, like again, the horror in this is the real deal, so like I don't want to take any of that away from
0: it. Yeah, they definitely get close, that's for sure. So, with no help, no legitimate help from the Cairo Museum, and with no money to fund this expedition, Steve and Babe are now just like trying to figure out what to do. Steve did manage to procure a permit to dig wherever he wants, I imagine he got that from Dr. Petrie, but without. Money to fund an excavation. It would literally just be he and babe out in the desert with shovels You know, I think that babe even makes a joke about that So the permits great, but without the funding they really can't move on this this information that they have and so enter our Beneficiary the next scene they are at a bar and babe is hustling people for drinks with card tricks
1: Which is perfect when you remember that they're pretty broke
0: (laughs) Right Yeah, he has no money to pay for drinks, so he's betting the bartender that he can find his card in the deck and that instead of betting money, they bet the drinks. So he's just drinking for free, screwing over the bartender with his card tricks. And then enter Salvani who we, as the audience, we get some information up on the wall. He's a poster. He has been like the headliner at this particular establishment for a while. He's a magician. And Steve also recognizes this, but is too late in letting his buddy know what the situation is. So Babe ends up getting fooled by Silvani and owing the entire bar drinks.
1: (laughs) This is fantastic. Like, I like how he sort of cons the bartender, but then, like, gets conned himself, like, turned around. Like, to me, that felt like the censors almost looking over their shoulder being like, you can't have him get away with that. Someone has to come along and, like, do it to him as well. Introducing this character of the magician of Silvani, where did they come up with this? Like, what what was, like, I'm straining to think of, like, where the grain of this idea, where did it come from? The only thing I could think of is like the difference between his magic and the real magic of the worlds right yeah so like in this world there is real magic and then there are guys like tim sullivan aka the great sylvani who does parlor tricks card tricks cuts his daughter in half on stage they seem to do maybe like the catch a bullet trick or something (laughs) they're like a big kind of sideshow thing but then this magician dude is gonna come up next to for all intent and purposes like a sorcerer right like i would almost call like the professor a sorcerer at the end of this movie with, with everything that he's trying to do. He's commanding a mummy, for crying out loud. I, it's a sorcerer in my book.
0: I think you're probably on to something, because it is very strange to introduce this type of character in this film why a magician why is he the guy who's going to give them the money they need to excavate right like it doesn't make any sense but i do like your train of thought there i think the juxtaposition of artificial magic and real magic is really cool unfortunately this movie is not at all interested in exploring that
1: <laughs> so that's what i had in my mind because we live in the modern day and yeah. you know we dissect things to no end and that's right. the fun part of this show and it's like oh i could probably you know write something about that but then it occurred to me me well this comedy is very vaudeville yes. what are some other kind of vaudeville acts out there oh i don't know a magician maybe yeah we even come to find out this guy's from greenpoint so it's like they're from the same boardwalk right like it, it just blew my mind at that point where like the answer was so simple and i tried to make it so kind of abstract <laughs>
0: It's such a fun scene, like as much sense as it makes or doesn't make. It's neither here nor there. I think the scene is very fun. It definitely plays out like an Abbott and Costello scene. This, I think, this more than any other scene in the whole movie, really could have been transposed from an Abbott and Costello movie, right?
1: Oh, certainly, yeah, definitely. Especially when he starts like pouring drinks out of his finger, and they like use the magical trickery of cinema, right? Like I thought of that as well. You know, like when you watch magic in a movie, there's kind of no magic to it because, like, you know, they could use movie magic so like i watched this going like oh it's almost like reminding me of george malaise and being that kind of like film magician and everything but but again they never really go that far with it they just they make a rock disappear in some guy's mouth you know
0: <laughs> yeah that and Sylvanie makes like booze pour out of babe's hand it looks like it was done practically but yeah it's all like so much of it is is, is movie magic and smoke and mirrors and so on yeah definitely
1: still fun you know even houdini made silent film he was into that too where he was like yeah let's let's do it let's fake it on screen
0: yeah like the card trick like i watched it a couple of times and there is no there is no illusion happening in the camera right like they cut the scene a couple of times and they make the trick work however they need it to they don't actually have an illusion happen in camera yeah, they're they're definitely taking liberties, but again, I find Wallace Ford to just be so entertaining in these sequences like he can't stop himself from laughing through most sentences. And like as we'll see in later scenes, he just has magic overflowing out of him. Like, he can't seem to do anything without, like, pulling flowers out of a sleeve or a big handkerchief or whatever. He just has all this shit on him all the time. If we're thinking about this practically, I'm just like, how exhausting does that have to be to reset all of that before going out for the day? (laughs) That's
1: the life. That's the prestige, right? Like, that's what you're in for. It's like, once you do it once, you got to keep it up forever. And he's like, you know, I've been wearing these flowers up my sleeve for 30 (laughs) years now. (laughs) It's like, at this point, it's all sewn into the jacket and it's yeah. just like a trickery jacket and he's like Travis Bickle but instead of a gun you know it's a handkerchief or something <laughs> these characters really enjoy each other which was Kind of fun to watch, you know, everybody like getting along and becoming
0: friends. Yeah. And I'll say this however much the movie works or doesn't work, depending on how you feel about it, I think that it's very clear that these performers, all of them, are having a lot of fun making the movie. And I think that that enthusiasm transfers to the viewer, at least for me. You know, like I watch it, I see them laughing and having a good time, and I'm having a good time. I sort of forget that I'm in a mummy movie.
1: Oh, yeah. We are not in a mummy movie anymore.
0: (laughs) I have. No problem with that. I think and I think it's just because I see the actors having a good time, as opposed to like some other movies where I think we'll see them kind of checked out. They're kinda over the whole thing and
1: if we were saying last time with Invisible Man Returns, how like, you know, they were probably making other noir films and they're like, hey, let's make a noir with the Invisible Man, and it's like, oh well, it turned out good because we're good at making noir movies. And then there are also like probably tons of universal comedies on the lot, right? So they're like, let's see if that'll work with them with the mummy. Mummy's funny, <laughs> right? Funny mummy. Like, <laughs> and they kind of accidentally pulled it off. I don't know. Like, you know, they're just going for like a cheap thing, but they got more than they expected. I think.
0: So what Steve and Babe don't know is that Andohab has a kind of homeless network, very similar to like what Sherlock Holmes would have.
1: Is that where John Wick got it from? It was Sherlock Holmes. Is that? Who, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, his yeah. network of New York City bums.
0: <laughs> right. So, and Oheb has one, at least one guy, right? That's the only guy we really see. But we can presume that he has a, a network of guys who, who inform on things. So, we can assume that this man, this spy, we can call him, alerted M to Steve and Babe before they are initially met, right? And then in this scene, that same sort of like homeless beggar is in the bar as the deal is going down between Steve, Babe, and Silvani. And so of course, this informant is gonna let Andoheb know about this. So the next scene cuts to Marta. Now we haven't met Marta, but in this scene we learn that she is Silvani's daughter and she is like his assistant on stage when they perform. And, and Doheb visits her at their hotel room to let her know that her father is about to be swindled by a couple of con artists. just kind of throwing the wrench into those works.
1: Doubling down. yeah. This is a cool scene because he's trying to be nonviolent, I guess at first, yeah. right? It's a, it's a good sort of way to start. And like this is a cool scene because she's like, well, don't worry, like we're trying to get out of here anyway and he's like oh really like that was such yeah. a fun little moment where he realized like oh you don't want us that you will go get your father and take off great all right terrific <laughs> That was such an unexpected little moment.
0: And then he has that sort of like creepy moment with her. Like if you're not paying attention, you can very easily miss it. If there's one major criticism of this script that I have, it's that this moment doesn't really read as terribly important when it happens because it becomes important later in the final moments. This is where Andoheb meets Marta and then the wheels start to turn in his head that will influence him later yes
1: this is the stuff that they really needed to like beef up a lot because when they return to this at the very end like I didn't see it coming at all like there's in no way in this sequence is he scheming to make her his high priestess like it doesn't seem like it crosses his mind until the moment happens you know what I'm saying until the very end like he looks around and he's like oh you know what I could actually make her my high priestess if I wanted to you know like I just wish throughout the movie there was a little more of that also so That we could kind of have him be more villainous in a direct way, instead of him just trying to protect what's his. I would like to see him be more of a creep or something like that.
0: Yeah, it's put in there to foreshadow the finale, but yeah, it's so quick and so subtle that if you're not really paying attention, you could miss it entirely. And so I wish that they had expanded upon that a little bit more. But at least they did sort of sow the seed there in some in some way. At least they did meet, right? They did meet. Yes. And so we go back to the bar, which I meant to say, it looks very much like we're kind of like stuck into a low rent Casablanca here. I don't know if you got that vibe as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It
0: very much feels like the low budget Rick's Cafe American.
1: I was even thinking like these could be like Tarzan sets or something like that. They don't really care really about being uh, accurate with their geography, you know, to begin with. So it's like, who cares? <laughs>
0: Yes. And so we cut back to this place where Babe and Steve and Silvani are, you know, signing the contract. You know, they're going to ink the deal and Salvani is going to give them a couple thousand dollars to fund this expedition. There's a really funny gag I mentioned before where, you know, they're, they're out of booze and Silvani grabs Babe's finger and sort of makes liquor pour out of it into their glasses and a really fun little trick there. And so that spy, right? And Hoheb's spy is there watching this go down and i have to believe that he's the one who sort of starts the bar fight that is next yep but the the way this scene plays out it's so wonky uh, it didn't immediately occur to me that he was the one who instigated it because the way it plays out, it's like some guy just gets up out of the table and then like bumps into Salvani very awkwardly with intent. I think he's trying to play it off as it's accidental, but it's very clear he's leaning into Salvani, and so this bar fight happens. And is there any real reason for this bar fight to go down? No. <laughs> I think this this is just like the producers like we gotta inject some action into this sequence. Let's do a bar fight. I I actually
1: quite love this talk about like the last thing. I was expecting in a mummy movie but then again you know this is kind of what you get in like the Brendan Fraser mummy movie you know this is like a lot of this kind of stuff like I, I even feel like Marda is like sort of revised by Rachel Weiss, you know yeah. to a degree in in the in that series and everything so when a bar fight breaks out okay things are getting out of control I mean it remind me a lot of like a western as yeah. well all right and like there's a lot of those sensibilities happening here uh, also and the way the spy just sort of comes up and tries to shank him or something. It felt like a prison movie or something, you know? (laughs) I was like, what? I was like, I've never seen someone just like go for it and be like, like, he may as well have like thrown a bottle at his head.
0: Right, right. That would have been more exciting and more believable, you know, like than the way they staged it. They managed to escape through that window pretty quickly, but I I will say this for the scene. It does establish Steve as like a heroic leading man, you know, like you see him throw a couple punches, right? He looks pretty good as as like an action hero kind of character. Of course, we got Babe and we've got Silvani like, you know, fending dudes off and holding their own. But yeah, I think Steve comes out of this scene looking like a pretty strong leading man. Yeah, it's a scene that doesn't last very long. It's really just there to keep the scene moving because without the bar fight, it's just them, you know, signing the contract and toasting to good fortune, right? So I think having that, that bar fight in there, if for no other reason, is fun in that it, it just it keeps the pace up, you know? It keeps exciting things happening on screen.
1: Yeah, yeah. They also may be hip to the fact that people are after them after this scene, you know? I got the feeling like maybe they'll just like keep looking over their shoulder a little bit more. They might not be doing the smartest thing from here on out. They've actually been warned by the professor. He's been like, don't go there. (laughs) So like when some guy tries to knife you at a bar, maybe start putting two and two together.
0: (laughs) But they don't really get there. At least the movie doesn't go out of its way to... Give them that moment. But then in the next scene, Salvani heads back to his hotel room. His daughter Marta has packed up all of their clothes. There's this really fun exchange with them where, you know, he's kind of drunk and kind of giddy. And again, like I said, he has sort of magic coming out of every single pocket he has. And she knows 100% what he's been up to, or she, she suspects that he's given them all her money, and she is pissed. I really like this scene too.
1: Like, all the scenes sort of seem to have. This, like, theme going on of misunderstanding and then straightening them out. Yes. To one level or another. And, like, that's certainly what's going on again here, where it's like, we have this misunderstanding and we're just going to watch it sort of untie itself a little bit. And it's nice, you know? She's like, you went down there, you've spent your money on this fake contract and you got swindled. And then he's like, no, actually. It's not fake. And then she locks him in a trunk to go get the money back. I was like, damn, you locked your dad in the trunk. <laughs> but then I remembered he's a magician. He probably knows how to get out of that thing.
0: Yeah. I love the gag where she pushes him back into that trunk. It, it shuts. He can't get out. She opens it. He's gone. And then he's locked into a second trunk. This movie never misses an opportunity to give Salvani a chance to like lighten the mood with some kind of magic. Even later in the movie, when things get a little tense, he's doing like that rock trick, you know? So yeah, he's just there to, to lighten the mood, even as she's furious and screaming at him. I think it's a really nice contrast. This is the best scene that Peggy Moran has. You know, this and the following scene. Because she's really like, she's got the most agency and she's like gonna take charge of the situation. And so, as soon as she leaves her father, she takes a prop gun, like a magic gun with her, hides it in her purse, and immediately heads back to the Cairo Hotel where she knows Steve and Babe are with presumably her father's money. And when she gets there, they have another situation, like you've described, where there's like a misunderstanding. She confuses Babe for Steve. Um, She demonstrates the trick gun, which, like, I don't know if you caught this, but if Babe were paying attention, he would realize that she fired more shots out of that gun than that gun should really hold. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't even
1: entirely sure it was like a trick gun. It seemed like it could still hurt you somehow. She is this like sharpshooter that makes a heart on the door out (laughs) of bullets. And, you know, like Steve's in the other room shaving or something. And it seems like they're whizzing by his head or something, you know, like, I'm not sure how tricky this gun actually is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't exactly understand what makes it a trick revolver, you know, but I did notice she fired like more than six shots out of it and if i'm babe i'm like believing that it's a real gun like you got to be out of ammunition at this point but she's not concerned with that but yeah in this scene sort of everything is sort of made clear steve and babe established themselves as legitimate archaeologists they didn't realize that Silvani wasn't a super wealthy man and that they kind of took all the money that they had and spent it on equipment and all sorts of things for their archaeological digs so it's too little too late but at least we sort of Everyone sort of clears the air. We're all on the same side here. They uh, decide they're going to head out to seek out the Hill of the Seven Jackals with their artifact and their permit.
1: And their dynamite.
0: They're in the location that they they believe are the Hills of the Seven Jackals. Uh, they've got their... Their archaeological equipment, they're finding little bits and pieces here and there, not a whole lot. They've got their demolition. They're going about to like blow out a whole section of this rock face. When they find human remains, right, they've got like a team of native Egyptians there to help them with their dig. And one of them finds a full skeleton. And it is uh, a member of a team that had come out there like two years prior and had never returned. I think Andoheb mentions that there were two excavations or two teams that went out in recent years, and both of them never returned. So I think this might be the most recent, or at least it's one of them. We get a sense that maybe their death was not natural.
1: Yeah, and I think he's like, this is Dr gustav and his wife i was like right. ooh, damn and if that's all that's left of like the last expedition there's nothing left of the one before that i would turn around
0: but like steve is, is kind of like maybe it was like a landslide you know and like some rocks came down and and, and killed them you know like, yeah
1: well like even if it is a landslide like no one said anything about it being a mummy yet you know like it's treacherous
0: yes they've been told multiple times that that is a very dangerous area of, of the desert there could be quicksand for all you know that's it But no, so Babe is in charge of demolition, apparently, and blows out a whole section of this mountain. And they discover a a seal. And it is a seal that was like on that pot that they had. It sort of was like a kind of like a map to where Ananka's tomb should be. And so when they blow out this rock, they find a seal that matches that Princess Ananka symbol on the pottery. So they know they're like on the right track.
1: Yeah, it's a cool scene when it bursts open and everyone sort of all their help kind of like leaves them, goes running. Yes. It's all very much like a bad omen and a bad idea to be going in there. Also, too, like that's the whole thing. So, like, what what I think is like kind of interesting at this point is like we know that what they're looking for, but we also know what they're going to find instead, right? Because like we've been told that there's like a second mummy in there for all intent and purpose. Like there's the princess resting, sure, but then like they have no idea about this other guy who's been put there to protect her. It's sort of like very tense when they're about to enter this tomb for me.
0: Yeah, you know, for those of us who. have seen the original mummy like this is where it looks like our moment right we know they're gonna enter this tomb the mummy is going to be a very dangerous threat to all of them presumably but it takes its time right they move into the tomb they open the cover of this tomb to reveal this mummy and they realize it's not Ananka it is some other mummy in a cheap sarcophagus you know so they're almost dismayed that like their discovery is just not significant
1: and, and I gotta be honest Dan I was a little dismayed as well because all this time I'm thinking we might get two mummies in this movie <laughs> you know I might be asking for too much but obviously we know Karis is down there and that he's sort of been kept alive all this time but we also know that the princess is down there too so like I'm thinking you know maybe this one mummy is gonna give the tea to the other mummy and we might have two mummies so like when they open the thing And it's just the one I'm also sort of a little like, oh, but then I'm like, actually, this movie looks awesome.
0: I mean, this is where it gets similar to the opening scenes of the original mummy. You know, we've got Dr. Petrie there who is an expert on Egypt history and he's, a, he's an Egyptologist. He's doing a kind of like the heavy work here investigating this mummy that they've found. They're still not done searching. They still want to find an Ankh's tomb, but they found this uh, sarcophagus, this mummy. So he's doing the work there. He finds the tana leaves, right? And he even mentions in this scene that uh, he was buried with them and they are now extinct. And they have no real clue as to what their purpose is except to assume maybe they were used for embalming purposes, right? But we know what the Tana Leaves are for.
1: Yeah, if they only knew, you know, they could be millionaires. Like, not
0: to jump the gun or anything,
1: but I think at the end of this movie, and when Endoheb is like, uh, you know, we're going to use these leaves to be immortal, I'm like, bro, like, bottle that shit. Patent it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking? Like, you have the the secret to immortality right here. Like, let's get this to a lab. Let's save some of these leaves.
0: And we get a visit from Endoheb who, of course, knows that they've made it all the way out to the Hills of the Seven Jackals, and they're messing with Karis's tomb. And so, as cool as ever, right? Like, again, he never really gets fanatical, this whole entire movie. I love how cool he is in every scene. He encounters Dr. Petrie in the sort of tomb itself and gives him, basically, a demonstration of what these tana leaves are used for.
1: This is so terrifying, in it's sort of like concept because it's almost like if the Bond villain killed Bond after explaining the plan right (laughs) like if he actually succeeded in like revealing his plan and then shooting him in the head or something because he's gonna be like I take these leaves I make this drink I feed it to my mummy the mummy comes alive the mummy kills you and like that's exactly what happens in this scene
0: yes before Dr. Petrie has any idea what the hell is happening he is choking to death by the resurrected Karis, and Doheb reiterates all of the rules right he's got to explain it to our cast of characters or at least just the one in this case. But I love this scene. Like, I love how this plays as opposed to Karloff's awakening in the original movie. I mean, that that's so brief and subtle and brilliant. Here, it's much more broad on the nose. He rises almost like a Frankenstein monster from the slab. You know, he's only got the use of the one arm and just chokes the life out of Dr. Petrie.
1: Yeah, and I like the idea that he's conscious like he can
0: understand
1: you know he's not like an imbecile or anything it's just that he's sort of under control
0: and i like that he's never really dead like they have this process of giving him the tana tea like every full moon just to keep his pulse going
1: that's amazing to think about too that this cult has like been that devout for like thousands of years <laughs> and they've kept this thing going you have
0: to wonder how many tana leaves they've gone through to keep him alive this long well, that's what i'm saying there's gotta
1: be like black panther there's gotta be like a garden somewhere nearby where they're growing the power of fruit that he eats you know <laughs> like there's gotta be they gotta search more of those tombs like another 10 minutes of tunnels where they find like all this stuff going on down there and maybe a second mummy
0: before we move on to the next scene I would like to just shine a light onto some material that was originally included in this film that did not make it in ultimately, ended up on the cutting room floor, but I think should have been left in.
1: Okay, so this is stuff that was actually filmed as opposed to something that was in the script they just decided not to do?
0: I can't confirm which of the two it is. I know that it could have been filmed. On, uh, it could have just been in the script. I'm not entirely sure. But I do know that this scene did exist at some point in some way and was uh, eventually cut out of the finished film.
1: Okay, I'm, I'm dying to know because, as we've been saying, if anything, this movie needs an extra scene or two.
0: Yes, so within this scene, there was a moment where Andoheb is contemplating um, what he's about to do, where he's going to, you know, use the tana leaves to make he and Marta immortal. And he is interrupted by two other priests of Karnak. Oh, no way. And one of them says, quote, You must destroy the girl. This is sacrilege. The wrath of Isis will fall on our heads. Whoa. Yeah. And so Andoheb at that point commands Karis to kill those two priests wow yeah he's like officially off the reservation at this point but I I feel like this scene should have been left in there's so much comedy in here that having this in there would have really upped the stakes you know increased some of the tension you know kind of added some weight to the events of the whole scene I think this movie could have done with a little more of that and also it would have expanded a little more on this whole cult of Karnak yeah all we've got So far are these two characters, the original high priest, and we've got Andoheb, and and like that's all we know of this this group of people. But to have two more of these guys show up in that scene would have really helped sort of flesh out this whole like I don't want to call it an organization or a religion, you know, but like this group of people whose job it is is to preserve the princess and, and, and Karis and all of that. So I feel like it was a missed opportunity to really expand on it. But at the same time, I don't know that this is the movie that you know is is really the one that's interested in exploring like like so many other things
1: true 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 it adds a lot though just that one little scene it goes to show you like you know, another issue we've sort of been having is like, who's the main villain? Like, who's the actual bad guy here? And like, this just goes to show like he's leaning more into that position of like, he's an actual bad guy. Like, whatever, you know, he's doing, if he's protecting this land or, and stuff like that. But now we get to see him actually go against that, right? Like, we would have these other priests in there saying like, you've gone too far. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is madness. Um, that's just sort of how I see the scene playing out there. And then we won't feel so bad for this guy anymore.
0: Right, at at some point, he has been corrupted by the power he's inherited, and he is no longer really abiding by the rules that govern these priests of Karnak. He is drunk with power, so to speak that's the moment that would have really established him as a villain. I mean, not that we don't get that, but it would have been a nice extra bit of like, there would have been some stunts in there. Cause he like, you know, Karras would have like dispatched two of these guys. I think one of them took a fall, like from a flight of stairs. There could have been some really exciting stuff, but I mean, maybe because of budget issues, I'm not sure, but we don't get that in the finished film. Would have been a fun scene. It's a shame we don't have it.
1: You know, it would have added two extra deaths, you know, which uh, yep. would have been something we could have seen the mummy, take on two guys at once to sort of show like how much more powerful he's become or something like that and maybe that might even be a reason they cut it is because of the extra deaths and everything but again yeah just I think it just proves like this little bit would have gone like a long way or like little extra bits like that like little short scenes or whatever all adds vital information yeah it would have been great but I'm, gl- I'm glad you found this out and I'm, and I'm very happy to know this now
0: yeah, I mean, considering the next three Mummy films will be about karis and the, the priests of Karnak, you know, there's potential to expand on on those characters there. But the fact that this this scene could have existed here, I'm just, it's right there. I just feel like if you're going to take the titular monster of your film and reduce him to, like, just being this tool that is used by others to further their own agendas, you should expand on that group of people, right? Or the that person, that group of people. So... It's just what it is. The movie, I don't think, is worse for not having it, but it certainly would have been better if it did include it, you know? All right. So with Dr. Petrie dead, Ando Heb makes use of his homeless man spy character.
1: His network. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: This dude is tasked with taking little vials of the Tana solution and hiding them in the tents of our archaeologists. And, you know, this basically serves as bait for... Karis, right? Like he he wants full use of his extremities because with the nine tana leaf solution, it really just brings him back to life. He can choke people out, but he doesn't have full use of his one arm. He's kind of dragging his one foot, right? So and, and Endoheb even says to him like, I know you would like to have use of that arm, right? So like the tana tea is put out there as bait so that he will go to these places and take out each member of our archaeological team. And I'm thinking, what's going
1: on? Because I was told if Callus drinks too much, he's gonna turn into some unstoppable killing force, or like, you know, it's gonna be doomsday. And and Doheb is just like indulging him. He's like, go where there's the juice and drink the juice. And and you're gonna we're gonna find out at the end, that's his intention, is to unleash this mummy on the earth. Like he is not abiding by his father's wishes of keeping a low profile, keep this thing hidden. Like some Something that I might have missed drove him to some kind of brink where he was like, screw it, the world is going to know, for better or worse, the cat's out of the bag.
0: He's really playing fast and loose with this mummy. Yeah, it's almost like he doesn't think
1: that something that bad is really going to happen if he doesn't follow the rules. But what I'm thinking is slowly this mummy is going to like reform and be able to just choke him out. What do you think he's going to do when he doesn't need any more juice? He's just going to kill this guy. And like, that's that.
0: Yes, I think the better ending, like not to bury the lead, but assuming people have seen the movie already. Yeah, Andohab is not killed by the mummy. Like that would have been the best ending.
1: Yeah, he's shot by Babe. Yes. Of all people, the funniest guy is commissioned with shooting the villain of yes. the movie. That was really strange. Like talk about funny. Like yes. I, I did laugh. I was like, how is he doing with a gun? This, this Babe, this, you know, he wouldn't hurt a fly, this guy.
0: Like, again, I don't think it's really all that interested in exploring some of the deeper themes of the film.
1: Which, you know, is the thing, right? Like, that's kind of was the universal stamp for for me anyway, right? Like, coming up is, like, they're getting very kind of deep with this material. Like, they're sneaking a lot of stuff in here. Like, it's talking about a lot of issues and presenting a lot of ideas and stuff. And now we're kind of... Devoid of all of that. You know, if it's yes. here, it's unintentional. It's just by way of sort of the genre or the tropes and them working well and them just kind of clicking with the material. And then it's us that are kind of reading into it. It's it's not the movie telling us. Right.
0: And so the following scene, we get Steve and Marta together in what is sort of the beginning I guess of their romantic involvement with each other. It's not as so on the nose as that sounds but it's sort of the beginning of that process I mean we've only got like another 20 minutes left of the movie so like these beats are going to come hard and fast but in this scene they're, they're sort of uh, analyzing the markings that they have right? The marking that's been on the pot that sort of outlines where the tomb should be like where they found the symbol you know the tomb they found so on and so forth and for some reason It is Marta and not Steve who figures out that there must be some sort of like underground network that connects the two things.
1: Oh, you know what? I I thought she thought that way because it's like a magic cabinet. There's a false back to the mummies, what they call it like the mummy box but (laughs) you know they can't say like it's the sarcophagus or the casket basically the mummy casket that to me was like she's like oh it must have like a there must be a secret tunnel somewhere or thing of that and like i don't know i really enjoyed that It just made me feel like she felt useful she was smart she was able to like kind of contribute something that they were overlooking maybe because you know she's from that that's her background is like Mm -hmm, deception mm -hmm. because she's a magician you know it's not nefarious but it's the showman kind of thing but like yeah she's like there's definitely like a false wall here or something
0: for 100 percent, i love it for the reasons that you love it it just struck me as strange that something so simple like steve who is this archaeologist it didn't occur to him sooner (laughs) (laughs) i take your point absolutely for the sake of giving Marta uh, a really great moment to like be useful in this scene. Like, yeah, I think hundred percent I'd rather it go that way, but it just, it just struck me as strange. There's also something a little
1: kind of, fun about steve he's kind of thrown off right because he's Mm -hmm. like wait a minute like we found the place but we didn't find what we were looking for and he even has like a little talk about it with the magician and everything and he's like what is what is it supposed to mean and every so i feel like he's off his game a little bit and he can't see it even if it's like right in front of his face
0: Yeah, so now we know, or at least they know, that they either haven't been digging in the right place or like there's some sort of secret way or some other way to get to the tomb of Ananka. So that becomes sort of their focus from now to the end of the movie. But in between that, we've got... Karis, who is sneaking into people's tents and attacking the members of the team here. Starting with Ali, who is sort of like the native Egyptian who is in charge of the crew of Egyptian diggers. Speaks English, you know, he's kind of like their lead man for that team. Just as he notices this little glass vial with the jackal head on it, Karis comes like shuffling in and chokes the life out of them immediately. And then you get those beautiful black eyes, you know, I, I love that.
1: Yeah, and again, I really like the image of the mummy. I don't know, but maybe part of it is, like, there's such a simple, basic, like, thing to it, you know? It's just a... just like the bandage thing but the way that like some of him is exposed and and this kind of goes for the mummy design throughout history but like the way that they have the wraps like kind of falling off and exposing little parts of him and like trailing behind him kind of like tied up his arm a little bit into like a sling and stuff I like how it's working with the movement of his constriction and his frustration like I can almost feel it and you know we've mentioned from time to time like if you could tell a character by his silhouette you've Seated in designing him. And, and definitely like you see the mummy, uh you could like tell what you're looking at immediately. You know, you see like the little strips like just like flailing behind him and, and the, the way that his body's like contorted, even if he's standing still, I feel like you could always tell it's the mummy.
0: Oh yeah, I totally love the way that this particular design influenced like pretty much every future mummy movie you know including the hammer mummy films like christopher lee's mummy looks very similar to this i think he even has limited use of like one hand and he's still just kind of like doing the same kind of stuff with the with the other hand so we go back to the caris's tomb where steve and marta and babe are and marta notices there are no leaves in the big pot that were in there earlier, like when they first discovered the tomb. Steve's like, yeah, I noticed the reliefs in there. I, I wonder, you know, it's weird that they're gone. All right, I guess we better get some sleep doesn't think anything of it really but that's when they discover that Ali has been killed back in camp and like now they're kind of like on high alert right things are really starting to be weird
1: yeah even they mentioned the full moon yes. you know like up until now it's kind of cool cuz like they mentioned in, the mummy can only sort of be controlled on the full moon these guys don't know it but they have their own sort of like superstitions about the moon like you know everyone on the planet does
0: i guess right
1: so it's kind of cool how they also are like oh look at that it's a full moon you know things get kind of weird on full moons and stuff. So like... Definitely.
0: I love the way the moon is, is like incorporated here because like like you said before, it kind of reminds me of like a werewolf movie. So...
1: Yeah, yeah. They really want to use that for something, right? Like they're yes. not going to give up until they marry it to the werewolf idea.
0: <laughs> so uh, we cut back to Ali who is disseminating more of these vials of the Tana tea and he sticks one in Salvani's tent, right? So everybody else is kind of hanging out by the fire, Mar and babe are there just just chit-chatting and sylvani and steve head back to their tents and this is where marta sort of really goes full tilt hey uh, i'm in love with steve and gives him a quick kiss before she heads into the into her tent yeah
1: which seems like it might have been from another draft or something like that to me but then
0: again if this
1: movie was an extra 20 minutes they could have explored this you know it wouldn't have yes. felt so sort of rushed and jarring but that's just what's going to happen because of the running time everything basically from here forth is like warp speed everything is here that needs to be here but like it could use some padding if you catch my drift
0: Yeah, I mean, once the mummy is brought back to life and starts killing people, it becomes, you know, how do we set up the next kill scene? As soon as one happens.
1: Yeah, I was thinking of a fun scene would have been like if the guy realized he left a jar of the tea juice in his office at the university and the mummy comes storming through the library or something (laughs) looking for it.
0: That evening, of course, Karis barges into the Silvani tent and gets his Tana juice and immediately starts to like choke the life out of Silvani right? But Marta is able to save his life. In exchange for Silvani, the mummy, Karas, decides to take Marta with him back to the temple inside, where Andoheb is, is waiting for him.
1: Yeah. Aside from it just, like, being the kidnapping trope, you know, he, he might have gotten her mistaken for the Princess Anaka, or, like, we know that he can think, he's just, like, under restrained mobility and everything so he could have an idea to be like oh i'm gonna like revive like what the first mummy did i'm gonna revive my wife or i'm gonna revive the princess into her body or something so like that's where my head went
0: yeah but none of that is established here right it all works solely on the strength of the trope of the monster carrying the helpless woman right like that's it This movie doesn't spend any time establishing, like in the original Mummy, you know, that the primary female character could have been a reincarnated version of the princess. There's none of that here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or even the idea that if there's a priest and a high priestess, they could control the Mummy better if it was stronger, right? Like, that could have been a whole other sort of addition to the lore or something. And something else in there to flesh that out a bit would have been would have been great like it would have just elevated the movie so much just to have spent that extra time on those moments
0: yeah again i think it works because we understand the shorthand of what's happening here uh, but it would have been nice if they had expanded on it a little bit more yeah like you said another 20 minutes we could have gotten all the things we wanted out of this movie that aren't in here but now we sort of see that uh, andoheb's master plan so to speak is that he is going to use the tana leaves to brew more of this tea that will make him and Mar- to immortal, you know, uh, yeah. and, and live forever. And like, they'll essentially be like, like you said, kind of like a husband and wife controlling this mummy and what ruling Egypt for all of eternity. World
1: domination.
0: Possibly world domination. Sure.
1: Where else do you, that's where everyone goes, you know, uh, call me nemesis, right? Isn't that what <laughs> the invisible man said yeah. last week or last month? Like I was half expecting him to be like, you know, I will be the new... Rama Tut or whatever like you know we will rebuild Karnak in my image like that kind of talk and but he never really gets to that level he doesn't really have the chance to go there. Aside from it being completely out of nowhere um, and saying like we didn't understand what they were trying to do through shorthand it's still like this bizarre unexpected twist at the end. Yeah. That could kind of like work on its own without all of our complaints about it and stuff or or whatever we're saying that would would make it sort of make more sense. The fact that it comes out of nowhere in a movie sort of full of these little moments that that give us these tiny twists is kind of like a fun moment. You know, I'm, I'm going what the hell this is out of nowhere. But at the same time, there's like a weird M. Night Shyamalan sort of vibe to it where it's like so out of left field that it kind of works or it's like that was what you're going for
0: okay i'm i'm going <laughs> with it yeah and i think a lot of it has to do with george zucco's performance cuz like you could argue who the real villain is here for much of the movie but because zucco is playing his character as nefarious for the whole movie it doesn't strike me as this wild crazy leap in logic It's just his megalomania hasn't been established until this moment. I wish we had gotten a little more... Of that, just to prepare it, because like we we already get that he's kind of into her, but that's it. And I never got the sense that he was into anything more than just protecting Ananka's tomb, right? But here we get the full Bond villain monologue about how they're gonna live forever, and he's gonna be the high priest, she's gonna be the high priestess, and and now it's you know up to Steve and Babe to get there in time to save her life. Like it's literally it's literally it's its most basic form, right? Yeah, it could have been kind
1: of cool if we find out right from the jump that. That he never had the intention of keeping this under on the down low like he always was going to sort of betray his ancestors and the former high priest and try and use this mummy for his own gain that would have been cool if he was revealing to his little spy at some point uh, and then maybe killing them after just so he could get it off his chest that's how that one scene kind of plays right, out right. with Dr. Petrie where he's just like trying he's like I've got to tell somebody but I've got to kill them it's like you, <laughs> it's like classified information I could tell you but I'd have to kill you uh-huh. But otherwise, you know, I'm I'm still with it. I'm still having fun. Like, the the movie won me over way before this. It's not going to lose me in the last, like, three minutes.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I think, like, I'm only being hypercritical here because, you know, it's sort of the nature of what we're doing is just going scene by scene and analyzing this stuff and, and really breaking down what we like and don't like. But at the end of the day, I'm still having a good time. Before I come across as seeming too harsh, I think that this is a really fun kind of B-movie serial kind of
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's going to be something coming up here at the end. I wish was sort of executed better. But again, I feel like this is a movie where the ideas are sort of bigger than their budget and they're able to get the point across. Okay. And that's all I really need.
0: That's all I want. Yes. Uh, yeah, I definitely feel like I'm able to fill in the blanks that they couldn't because they didn't have the money. So now the rest of the movie is pretty much like a mad dash to the end to save Marta. And Steve manages to get like a major clue in the artifacts that they have. And, and like he and Babe split up and try to like locate the entrance to this temple. We have a great scene which we referred to earlier where Babe encounters Endoheb, like sort of interrupts this ceremony, like literally right before the needle goes into her arm. Babe Fires off a gunshot. And and so Andoheb intervenes. And, you know, it's not the obvious choice, but I like that Babe is the one who gets to pull the trigger here. I mean, I would prefer if the mummy were to kill Andoheb, but I think that's the more poetic ending. But rather than have Steve come in and do all the hero stuff, Babe gets a moment where he gets to kill the villain.
1: Yeah. And again, like kind of twisty. Yes. Like I would never have expected this guy to have it in him. Not that he's like a wimp or anything like that, but I mean, it's kind of funny how he pulls that line at the very end about women passing out after the action and then he passes Uh out. uh But aside from that, like he's just a normal dude. Like I just did not expect him to stand up to this guy in that way, but he ends up pulling the trigger and the poor dude's gonna go back to Colony Island with nightmares for years and years.
0: Following that scene, we get Steve, who faces off against the mummy. Now, like it's been mentioned a couple times in the movie already, that if Karis ingests more than nine leaves worth of, it's like Tana or whatever you want to call it he will become this unstoppable uncontrollable violent force and he has brewed enough of that in the ceremony that he was about to conduct with him and in Marta so the fluid is there ready to be consumed by Karras and Steve noticing what's about to happen intervenes there's a really great I think it's a pretty fun hand-to-hand combat scene. This is the most physical Tom Tyler gets to be as the mummy, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Aside from, like, I think we met our stunt quota during the bar fight, so we're not (laughs) going to get that much more, like, brawling or anything. But it is kind of cool. Like, I definitely love seeing the mummy get shot and keep coming. Yes. I like seeing the mummy throw the guy out of the way. Yes. You see the brute strength. And then he throws the guy, goes, like, sliding all the way across the temple floor and, like, crashes into those pottery things things and stuff so like he's out uh and then freaking babe again to the rescue right yes babe comes in he shoots the urn he spills the juice the poor mummy in the most like (laughs) undignified trying like an addict to just slurp whatever Uh he can of the juice off of the floor and it's like buddy it's gone it is gone and then steve lights him up he just puts the torch to him and it's like, oh, right. Like that's some quick thinking, like burn the mummy. Like even I was thinking like, how, what are they going to do? How are they going to get
0: rid of him now? And it's like fire, man. Fire is like the great cure-all for universal monsters, I feel like. When in doubt, just use fire. And so that's pretty much the finale of the movie. The mummy is burned and destroyed, we think. For now. For now, yeah. Yeah.
1: They say something at the end that has me very worried where they're like, well, we packed up everything from the dig site and sent it back to America. I'm like, no, (laughs) no, you're asking for it. Like you probably even scraped up the mummy remains and like put it in the same jar accidentally that the juice was in and like he's just going to come back to
0: life. we end on the, like the joke with everything safely on a on a boat back to America Steve gets a telegram from the Brooklyn Museum or or the museum from New York telling him that he now has like that guy's job and then that guy will be like washing bones and stuff and
1: it's like the weirdest callback because I thought that was just a one time joke and it's like did anyone remember that telegram
0: has anyone remembered that I mean I
1: know, I know it was only about 45 minutes ago but was anybody thinking about that to come back to be like the end of the movie, twist upon twist upon twist.
0: But, but all, all of our heroes are alive, have made it through the movie, and we end on a like the happiest note I think we've got so far, at least the most light-hearted. A little
1: too happy, Dan. I think <laughs> knowing that these guys come back for more, I have a feeling that they've got some dark days ahead.
0: Yes, so the story of Steve banning Babe Jensen and Karis is not over. But uh, it won't take us too long to get there, so I'll definitely look forward to that. That. Nice. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end unless you have something else you'd like to add.
1: No, I think we pretty much covered it. This was just like one of the most unexpected movies like I've seen, like definitely like in the universal movies we've watched so far. It is so much unlike like any of them. I mean, this is straight up a comedy, mm-hmm. but that's not to say it's a joke. No. I feel like there's a distinction to be made, okay? Like, this isn't, like, a good, bad movie. This isn't, like, Best of the Worst or anything like that. Like, this is actually, like, fun, okay? Like, it's not great. It's not terrible. It's totally, like, your average go at it, right? But in the context of The Mummy, the idea that this is a universal monster movie, like, blows my mind. Like, blows my mind. And, you know, we're, we're already at Abbott and Costello. Like, that makes so much more sense to me the the idea that that's you know where we're actually going to end for this series is like back here yep it's cool like it felt almost like a test run like can we get away with this you know it's only an hour if we screw up we'll make sure to make it up with the next one i don't know if that's true or not i haven't seen the next one but like yeah i, I was pleasantly surprised you know it starts off super strong it really kind of throws a wrench at you and says like this is going to be it it is what it is they accept it or you know you're going to turn it off but like hopefully you'll go along with it because i think it's worth it i think it's cool that this is like a nice bit of levity in after like a lot of madness Mm -hmm. right like in a row it's just like everything has been like madness and crazy people and like mon and like really vicious monsters and stuff and stuff so like it's kind of nice to have like a light one in there somewhere
0: Again, I like this one. I think that it it, it succeeds at what it is trying to do. It is very much a sort of light adventure serial with a horror element to it. But I think it's competently made. I think it's well acted. You know, if there's one real issue that I have with it, it's that it just doesn't have the depth that I would normally look for in something like this. But at the same time, it's not pretending to have those things either. It's very surface level, broad strokes, and it does all of those things pretty well. It's just, it doesn't have what I'm, uh, or it's not offering what I'm looking for. So to judge it on its own terms with what it's trying to do, I think it 100% accomplishes that. There are definitely better films that feature Universal Monsters, but this is by no means a bad movie. I think it's just comfortable being sort of light entertainment, and I think that's perfectly fine.
1: It's really easy to screw this stuff up, too. For sure. You know, just because it's comedy and it's light doesn't make it easy to produce you know this gets screwed up all the time
0: there's a ton of like poverty row stuff that really shows you just how bad these sorts of movies can be and i I don't think this deserves any of that criticism it's not striving to be carl freund's mummy movie so why should we hold it to that standard i don't i don't necessarily think we should all right with that, I think it's time for us to to get while the getting's good, but we will be back on Friday, September 23rd for some more invisible shenanigans as we discuss the invisible woman. I can't
1: believe we're going invisible again already.
0: Yeah, I would have expected maybe another Dracula or another Frankenstein maybe, but no, we're, we're going right back to the invisible stuff.
1: Yeah, I would have thought a new monster at this point, perhaps, but I guess we got to still wait a couple more episodes for that.
0: Well, we are almost there. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at The Us at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you online?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at the Mikester, and then you can find all the other shows I'm on at CageClub.me, Facebook.com/slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and Instagram. Check me out there, and thanks for listening
0: if you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a patreon supporter you can do so at patreon.com the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and a review on itunes that helps more people discover the show we can't forget about our t-shirts on t-public you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody